This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Gosh Pods. I'm Emma, the Digital Learning Fellow at Gosh and your host today. All this week on Gosh Pods, we are looking at leadership stories and I will be interviewing several senior members of staff about leadership, both clinical and non-clinical, about their career journey and their experiences. The importance of leadership and management is highlighted in the GOSH People Strategy, which focuses on the development of compassionate, competent leadership within the Trust and emphasises that every member of staff at GOSH should be given the opportunity to develop their leadership skills and encouraged to reach their full potential. In this episode, I'm joined by Matthew Shaw, the current Chief Executive of Great Ormond Street Hospital. Hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today, Dr. Shaw. That's all right. No problem at all. Call me Matt. Nobody calls me doctor anymore because I'm not a proper doctor anymore anyway. Okay, thank you. Could you just start by telling me the story of your career so far? Yeah, well, I certainly didn't quite expect to be in the position I'm in now when I went through medical school. I finished medical school in 1998. I was, I guess, background, nobody had been to university before myself. My mom actually went to university at the same time as I went to medical school. All my family were factory workers, so it was quite an unusual thing. Most of my family thought, what the heck are you going into medicine for? You'll just get a load of debt and, uh, you know. So I finished medical school in 1998 and then as medics do, just traveled the country doing different jobs and roles and ended up getting on a basic surgical rotation in Northampton. And then I traveled to Australia actually for a year and a half, which was brilliant. Great experience, different healthcare system, different culture. I did quite a few different specialties. So I did ITU neurosurgery, A&E, came back did a research job and a spinal surgery job, which I eventually became a spinal surgeon. And um, after my training program, which I did in Wessex initially, and then got transferred to London, I met my partner actually before I went to Australia. And I was pretty frustrated at the system for want of a better word at that time. They wouldn't let me move my training rotation next to my partner in London. They said I'd got to apply for a training number again. So I had to go through all that process. You know, it, it wasn't great in relation to how I thought people should be treated. And, you know, a national health service wasn't quite a national training program. So I guess throughout my training as a registrar, I got a bit more involved in politics and doctors training. So you'll remember the, the whole MTAS scandal with the, you know, computer program and how doctors should get their training posts and roles. And I was already a registrar, but my colleagues were being affected quite significantly. So I got into setting up Remedy UK, which is a, we ran a big junior doctors march down the Euston road and judicial reviewed the secretary of state for health and the head of the GMC, which was quite fun, quite stressful as a trainee doing that and raising a hundred thousand pounds. So you can actually take them to court, but we did. And then I did my senior fellowship in Australia again. I went to Brisbane to train as a, my final years as a spinal surgeon before getting to be a consultant spinal surgeon at Stanmore. So the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital. And then it was a bit. It was a bit unusual because I became clinical director of the department. There are 11 spinal surgeons within a year. I became medical director of the hospital within two years. And I became deputy chief exec two or three years after that. So it was quite an unusual career path for someone who was a junior consultant just starting out. And that wasn't something I envisaged, but something I eventually loved to do and thought was, you know, I wanted to do it. And then after five years of doing that, I carried on operating in the NHS, but I became a medical director in Bupa, which was 
a fascinating cultural change again, and a really interesting experience of working outside of the NHS in the private sector. And then became medical director of GOSH and then CEO seven months later. So it was, it's kind of a slight whirlwind from qualifying as a consultant to becoming, you know, a clinical director, medical director, deputy CEO, working in the private sector into a medical director job at GOSH and then a CEO. So yeah, that's the potted history, not quite planned in any way, but I ended up getting to where I got to. So going back to that time when you'd first been appointed as a consultant and you had quite a kind of rapid rise to clinical director, medical director, you say you hadn't envisaged that. So did that just come about by chance? How did that happen? So I, I guess and the reason I tell you a bit about the political stuff I did as a registrar, I was always a slight rebel and also, but someone who didn't like the status quo, if the status quo wasn't very good. So nobody wanted initially to be the clinical director. And I said, well, look, you know, I thought that I could impact and make a positive impact. And at the end of the day, I was planning to be there for many years and why leave it until I was in the latter part of my career? Why didn't I try and get stuck into it in the younger part of my career? And of course, that's the pure view of why I did it. But the negative of that was the medicine's really hierarchical. And how do you get senior consultants to take you seriously when you're kind of a new kid on the block? And what do I know? And that was the real challenge of that and doing that role. I was doing it for, I think, the right reasons and the right drivers, but carrying people along the journey with you, challenging the status quo and what was going on was really tough. So I did it because the opportunity came up and I took it and then I think the trust saw that after about 18 months that I was all right at it. And therefore, you know, I could try and bring people together. I could try and bring factions and parties together. I could operate at a level of the trust to try and get the trust into a better position. And I was really fortunate that the boss of the hospital, who I'm still very much in contact with now, gave me a shot at a very unusual stage of my career and saw something in me which he felt would be a positive thing for the trust. So that's what, what happened. So it's a bit of luck, really. And then just going back even further, do you think it was getting involved with the MTAS scandal and the work you did with Remedy? Was that what kind of prompted you to take an interest in leadership or had you had experience yeah. before then? So, so, no, I mean, I didn't set out in my training program thinking I'm a leader, I'm going to go into medical management. I think the bit around the MTAS stuff was really interesting. So we met up with a lot of the college leaders. We met with the government, we met with the BMA. We had a real movement of people. I mean, it, to describe it, it was myself who was a registrar and my colleague who was an SHO at the time. And, you know, we went from two people in a living room on a Monday night to 30 people in that living room to 15,000 people walking down the Euston Road, to raising a lot of money to challenge legally the government, to a mass lobby of parliament, where we lobbied 350, 400 MPs in a day. And it was a real lesson to me because the more I met people of seemingly seniority and an element of that they should have been wise, in some cases, I was really impressed. And in some cases, I was definitely not impressed. And it stimulated me to think, actually, we can do something better here. And if they can do it, I can do it. And so I think it was the seed of kind of saying, actually, there's an opportunity to make a difference on a bigger level. And I guess when I look at medicine and, you know, I used to love my clinics and stuff and all the patients I operated on and stuff, and it was great, but that was making a difference on that unitary patient level. 
Whereas this gave me an opportunity to try and introduce bigger change, which is hard and you're less likely to succeed in many ways, but it's also really interesting from a different perspective. And that's what really, I guess, rocked my boat. Moving on now to your current job, what does a typical day look like for you? Because I think most of us have kind of trouble maybe picturing what it is that you do on a daily basis. I'm sure most people would say, I don't do anything. I think it's really interesting. I mean, the thing I like about it is the variability. I mean, quite often people only come to see me in many ways, or we're talking about stuff as an executive team when there's real problems or issues. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes there's really good conversations about the future direction strategy and, and what we need to do differently in the trust in a really proactive way. It's that external relations within the hospitals, trusts, commissioners, regulators, which is what you do. It's how to, I mean, if I sum up my life at the moment, it's how do I balance a government and a political system that want us to deliver 110 to 120% of activity with the same staff or only slightly more than I had in the year 1920? How do I look after those staff? How do I manage all of the finances and how do I make sure that our waiting lists are coming down? And they are three very difficult plates to keep spinning at the same speed at once because inevitably they clash. So staff are tired. It's post COVID. They're all getting subinflationary pay rises. They're all a bit fed up by that. So how do you balance all of these competing priorities and trying to keep the hospital going in the best way that you can? And that's tough because how much can you control outside of the hospital? Well, very little. And yes, you can control some things in the organization, but not everything. So people are undergoing their normal lives, which is pretty stressful at the moment. And they're reflecting that in their work life. And how do we as senior managers in the organization, how do we help guide, support and balance all of these priorities? That's probably in summation what my job is, which is tricky. Yeah, it sounds really tricky. What do you enjoy most about the job? So actually the best bit of my job is when I go around the hospital, because I think you, you know, inherently I became a doctor for a reason and I've just given up my license to practice because obviously I haven't operated for a number of years. So I've given up my license. I'm registered, but not licensed. And that's been hard because, you know, intrinsically we do it for a reason, don't we? We do it because we enjoy it because we think we can be good at it. And then you lose something around that by moving into a type of job that I do at the moment. So I think the best part is going around the hospital and connecting with the basics of what the hospital does on a day-to-day -day basis, rather than focusing on the politics and the nonsense that are going on in the wider world. And that's grounding. It's really helpful in my understanding of what's working and what's not. That, and we've got some amazing people. So, so actually seeing them and doing what they do in their own environment is really good. That's the best bit. And do you miss your clinical work? I mean, you talk about it there like it's something that you really enjoyed. So is there an element of regret that you've given it up or how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a big thing, isn't it? There's not many doctors that get fired in the NHS. There's a lot of managers like me that get fired in the NHS. So I think, I mean, there's an element of security. There's an element of, you know, what you know and that safety of that and holding on to it. I mean, if I look at my clinical world before, you know, it's actually really enjoyable. We used to you know, same theatre team every week, great tunes on the radio, great sense of camaraderie and teamwork. It was, it was very mindful. So you could focus on a single child in front of you that you were fixing their spine and you could 
everything about what you were doing was about them in that one task. So that mindfulness and focus was really good. Whereas in this job, your focus is multi-pronged. In COVID, it was different. In COVID, it was a singular event, but generally there's multiple focuses to try and balance all of your attention. So I think I do miss it from that perspective, but I also enjoy the role that I'm doing for the variety that it brings. My day today is, you know, I'll be talking to you, but I've just been at the talk around the reach forum. So our BAME staff had a forum with a celebrity from the chase who was talking about his background and how he'd made it. He's a lawyer and all the things that he'd done. We had an executive meeting this morning where we we're talking about a number of really tricky, knotty problems that we've got at the moment. I've got a one-to-one -one with a member of my team, and then I've got a national meeting about a new service we're setting up. So every hour and every half an hour is very variable. And that's actually quite stimulating in a different way to how surgery was stimulating. And thinking back to your previous clinical role, do you think it has helped prepare you for your role in management? Are there skills that are transferable that have meant that you've maybe been able to apply some of what you learn as a surgeon to your current position now, or is it very different? No, I do think that. I mean, look, I don't believe all doctors are, are made to be leaders. And I think there will always need to be leaders of clinical teams. I think that's, that is absolutely right. And often that falls to the doctoral in, in the team brings that together. So, so I think hierarchy for me is quite important. And, you know, I didn't believe in hierarchy and medicine's quite hierarchical and that's never sat well with me. But I think as for the transferable skills, I think as a clinician, you live with a lot of risk. The things that we do inherently on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, my specialty was scoliosis and spinal surgery, you know, inherently one in a few hundreds of those children would be paralyzed. Now, as a non-clinical manager, you don't have to hold that level of risk and feel comfortable with it. But in the job that I'm doing now, I'm holding many risks, which you try and balance, you try and mitigate, you try and accept or not as the case may be. And I think it's quite grounding to have had that kind of risk that I held as a clinician versus I now hold as a chief exec. And how do you balance the priorities right? And how do you react in the right way? Not jump at everything, not jump at nothing, but try and achieve that balance of what are the things you really need to do. So I think that's been really helpful. I think being a doctor also allows you the intricacies of how hospitals function, the relationships between people, specialties, clinical, non-clinical, all of that stuff. You do have a deep understanding of how hospitals work. I think it's really also important, which you take from your clinical career into your managerial career. Of course, the question is really, should I have had to choose between medicine or being a manager? If you want clinical managers, should they have to choose? And the question there is, how do you set up a construct where they don't have to choose, where you use the benefit of their managerial skills, but also allow them to do their clinical skills? My choice was that I couldn't see myself doing a good job at the chief exec job without compromising my clinical job as a surgeon, because I think it's something you have to do day in, day out. That's the choice I made. That may be different in a different specialty, but that's the choice I made. Do you think that having to make that choice is the reason why some clinical staff are reluctant to take on management roles? Do you think there's any other reasons why it might be? And how do we overcome those reasons? So I think that's definitely some of it. 
I think there's definitely a, a not wanting to step into a managerial role and having to drop clinical sessions, the sense of safety that gives you, it's what you know, it's what you learn, it's your comfortable spot and that's what you want to do. I think that there's other reasons why people don't want to go into it though. I think do people feel it's valued in that way? You look at how managers are sometimes referred to, it, it's not great. You look at where, oh, where are we going to make cuts in the NHS? Well, we're going to make it in management, the management. And there's some truth in that, but there's also some naivety in that because the hospitals don't run themselves. I also think that sometimes people don't want to go into management because you end up having difficult conversations. And I don't believe everybody is necessarily as equipped as other people as having difficult conversations. And knowing that you may have to challenge colleagues and know that you have to challenge the status quo doesn't sit easily with everybody. And I think that's another reason why people sometimes may not want to go into management. For all they say, it's the easy bit and whatever else, probably 99% of my job is about people. And some of those conversations are tricky conversations, which I'm going against what individuals want to do, because I think that's in the hospitals or the patient's interest. And conflict doesn't sit easy with people. It doesn't sit easy with me, but that's the difference. You don't have that on a day-to-day -day basis in the same way as a clinical doctor. Speaking a bit more about conflict, has there ever been a time when in your role as a manager, it perhaps conflicted with your clinical role? I mean, I know you don't work a clinical role anymore, yeah. but perhaps when you did, has there ever been a conflict between yeah. two roles? Yeah, so I had a, a serious incident where I was operating on a patient with a vascular surgeon and we were trying to put a cage into a spine and the vena cava was injured and the patient arrested there and then. Six hours later, we managed to get the patient off the table. Second vascular surgeon, all of us working pretty hard and actually managed to get through that period. But unfortunately, six days later, the patient very suddenly dropped down dead with the PE. And that was hard. And it's hard because you've done something physical to somebody, even though you've had the right personnel, the right expertise and all of that stuff, we're a really traumatic event and a poor outcome to which you have to stump up and you have to model those right behaviors. And I remember talking in front of the hospital wide M&M &M about what I'd done wrong and right and learnings and lessons, going to the chief nurse and saying, you need to do a serious incident investigation into my practice over this case and handing over that responsibility to them to say, you need to look at this case and tell me if you think there's a problem and lay yourself open to that in a way that other people may or may not have been subject to in the same way. And I do think when you're in managerial jobs as clinicians, the bar is higher for you. Whether that's a real thing or a perception, I think the bar is higher for you or you certainly feel it anyway. And those are tough times, right? Because you, what about your own self-confidence and everything else? How about your own, you know, the next week, that operation that I've done that week, the next week, the same operation on my operating list was that case in a different patient. So it's, but you also gain insight into that which I think is really important. You know, what do other people go through as they go through these things? And how do you get what good can come out of it in terms of trying to model those behaviors to your colleagues? So you're walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And of course, for the people who see you as the young whippersnapper in these roles, they will say, well, you're rubbish at your job and you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's why you've got into management, which is, you know, what people say, and I've heard that, but they would be wrong because one of the steps you take when you're a clinical manager is you become very aware of that. So I used to measure every outcome within a, a, an inch of what you could measure. 
I used to nationally benchmark. I knew my infection rates. I knew everything about it so that I was cleaner than I could be, cleaner than clean in terms of saying, well, actually it's interesting your perspective on that, but actually that's not the reality burnout and here's the evidence of, of my practice. But these are the things you think of where you don't think in such a way if you're not a clinical manager, because you don't feel you need to be on that defensive foot. It sounds like you're having to deal with scrutiny of a lot of people, but ultimately, actually, it's you that's scrutinizing yourself the most, if that makes sense. Yeah, and handing that over to other people to scrutinize you and people are looking at you or seemingly looking at you more than necessarily they would look at someone else. And modeling that right behavior and trying to do the right thing is, you know, you constantly need to be aware of trying to do that. And, you know, there's not loads of surgeons in management areas. I can't remember, someone told me a stat, but there's maybe one or other like surgeon CEO. And that probably is related to the choices you have to make to do that, what you give up to get there and the balance of what you like doing versus what you don't. It's interesting. Definitely. Moving on to a slightly different area now. So thinking more about qualities that are needed for leadership and management. How would you describe your leadership style? Can you describe it? You've got to have a sense of humor. And you've got to be able to laugh at yourself a bit and not take yourself too seriously, because I, I think otherwise, you know, it, you just got to be able to accept that some things go well and some things go less well, and you don't always do the, the right thing. So I think you've got to be, if the one style I would say, yeah, be able to laugh at yourself, but you've got to be pragmatic. You might seek perfection, but rarely will you achieve it. What's that phrase? Excellent is the enemy of good or whatever the phrase is. You know, I think you've got to be happy in achieving the changes you can make and never expect it to be perfect in, in that, because it often in the environment we work, it won't be. So I think you've got to be pragmatic. He's well high up there. I believe that energy and motivation is such an important trait because if the leader is down in the dumps, if the leader is only focused on the negative, then the whole team and hospital will be focused on the negative. I, I saw this thing in a book where it said, you know, the only thing a leader can offer is optimism. And I think there's something that, you know, and it's not blind, stupid optimism. And it is also about reflecting the reality and achieving a balance. But I think there's something about trying to lead people to a better place and bringing as many people on that journey as you can. The other trait I think, which you need, I guess I'm talking traits rather than styles, but you know, resilience is absolutely, you've got to be really resilient. You have your very challenging times and you've got to be able to look at yourself and know you've done the right thing. You may not have done it in the right way. You may have made some errors along the way, but you need to know that your overarching sense of what you do is for the betterment of the organization, the children, the staff that are in it. It may not always play out like that, but you've got to be able to be resilient and know that you've done the right things for the right reasons and then get on and make those same decisions the next day and the next day. So uh, what would my team say? I've heard people say I'm a bit of a tigger. So a bit of a bouncy kind of energetic kind of guy. We have some fun at our exit meetings, which is good. So yeah, there you go. There's a few for you. Tigger. Tigger. Great. Do you think there's a difference between being a good leader and being a good manager? And do you find one of those roles easier or more natural than mm. the other? So I don't believe leadership is management. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of NHS managers who are administrators. I think they are, I'm going to make a strong comment now, but I think we often train people as drones. They think in the same way, do the same things in the same way, and they end up getting the same outputs as we normally would get. And I believe 
management is about the administration and organization, I don't believe that's leadership. I think leadership is challenging the status quo a bit. I think leadership is doing different things, maybe taking some risks in some areas in a calculated way. And I think it really is showing people a new way of doing things or how they can be. And I think we often misinterpret those terms and make them interchangeable and they are different. And I think it's, yeah, of course you can have days where I'm more managerial days where I'm taking a more leadership style, but I think it's really important people appreciate the difference between those two because they are very different and they achieve a very different outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think ultimately that good leadership is important within the trust? Well, our people do hard things and our patients have very hard situations, which they face with their families every day. There's no other area of medicine where it, it's so stressful or people can have so much fear of seeing a very sick child in their family. I think it's really frightening for people and people deserve to be supported and helped as they do their day-to-day -day job, just like our families and patients deserve to have all the support and brand stuff we can give them within what we can give them to get through a very difficult situation. So I think good leadership allows, enables, and if you get it right, empowers people to do the right things. Yeah, absolutely. And is there anything that you or the trust is doing to encourage or support the leaders of the future? So I think we've had lots of discussions and lots of leadership programs and things we've brought online. We've been putting people through external leadership courses, coaching bill for staff has like I can't tell you how many times it's increased. It's not like double, quippled, quadrupled. It's like, you know, massively high to try and get the best out of people, both through their own, so they can develop themselves, but also they can say so that they're the best version of themselves, but also to help them through difficult situations that they face at work. So I think we've put quite a lot of money, time and effort into doing that. We've partnered with FMLM and others to drive leadership and management of clinicians. Some of us have spent time like this talking about stories and where we've come from to try and encourage more people to do leadership. I always mention leadership and management at my induction with all of our doctors that come through. I used to ask for volunteers of who would like some experience of management in the organization and no one would put their hands up. And, and now I say, I know nobody's going to put their hand up because it's the dark side of medicine and no one wants to admit they might want to do it, but actually please do email me. And now people do email me and we have days where people tag around and shadow for the day. And we have a debrief and a conversation about it. So I think we've all put different amount of time linked to partners who, you know, are experts in this area, our own internal courses and investment in people in the organization, but there's always more you can do. There's always more you can do. And what advice would you give to people listening to this podcast who might be thinking about becoming more involved in leadership? I think you should just do it. You shouldn't worry what your colleagues are going to think. You shouldn't worry, you know, about anything. If you're interested, if you want to make a difference on a bigger scale and you feel that even if you haven't got all of the things that you're going to need to do it, none of us have, we've all got strengths and weaknesses in our personality and how we do things. I think just do it, try it. What's the worst that's going to happen? Worst that's going to happen is you don't like it or you might like it, in which case you've got some decisions to make about how do you balance all of these things? I think we. You know, in hospitals, we, we don't just need the shining stars of who's the best at doing surgery or medicine or whatever specialty you're doing, 
we need all rounders and we need people with expertise in various areas. So we do need good clinical managers. We do need good clinical educators. We do need good clinical researchers. And yes, we really need expertise in the clinical elements of the jobs, but we need all of those facets to be as successful as we can be. And if nobody comes up and stomps up or wants to do it, we're really missing out on something. So I'd encourage people just to try it, take on a project body with a colleague or, or a manager or a clinician, see if you like it, see if you can make a difference. And do you have a role model or somebody that has particularly inspired you within your career or just within life itself? Yeah. So the CEO who gave me a chance in my first year as a consultant, that was a brave move. It was a difficult area. And for him to do that was, it was brave and it was amazing. And he gave me an opportunity, which I would hope I would reciprocate if I saw the talent in the organization, even though it may be a young consultant or maybe a junior doctor, a trainee doctor, or, you know, I would hope I would do the same because of that experience I got. So they're two people I think were pretty amazing. Yeah, it sounds it. And just finally, looking back at your whole career to date, is there anything that you would have done differently? So I think I don't regret any of the choices I've made around careers. Uh, and I don't regret the journey I've traveled on and I don't regret leaving the NHS to do. It only ended up being kind of 15 months in the private sector because I got the job at Grail Street as the medical director. I don't regret any of that. Do I wish I could have balanced surgery and management more for longer? Probably. I don't think that was an option, but I think that was something I'd probably think about. And, you know, have I made mistakes? Yeah, I've made mistakes. And I think it's about thinking and reflecting on those and trying to learn from them as you go forward. I often do things with the right intent, but I often sometimes learn it doesn't always have to say right impact. And I think that's something for me to always peruse in my own mind. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Matt. It's been great to hear your views and I really appreciate your time. That's right. Pleasure and I look forward to chatting in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Pod's Leadership Stories. We hope it has inspired you to think about developing your leadership skills to reach your full potential. Great Ormond Street offers several in-person courses as well as e-learning programmes aimed at aspiring, developing and established leaders with accreditation from the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management. To find out more, log in to goshgold at lms.goshgold.org and search for leadership. We would love to get your feedback about the episode, as well as get your ideas for topics for future podcast series. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode, or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or visit our website at www gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.